Heavenly Father, open our eyes to your saving work through your Son, Jesus, that we might be made your children, reconciled to you. But, Lord, our hearts cry out for peace in this world. And so, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, reconcile us to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. For as much as we give thanks to God for the Reformation, there is a dark side to it as well. For where men's hearts are, lurks sin and division. The splintering of the church, which was happening even before the Reformation, but really picked up steam in its wake, is a blemish that should drive the church to repentance. Certainly there are issues that divide us, but the rigid lines that we often draw between denominations is a scandal. We see here in 1 Corinthians that even before the Reformation, division existed in the church. These dividing issues, however, were not doctrinal, but personal. People began to line up behind their favorite preacher. I look to Paul for my teaching, says one. Another responds, I look to Apollos for mine. Paul, he can't preach like Apollos. Apollos, he's a preacher. And so factions in the Corinthian church grew. And Paul's response to these divisions was twofold. One, he identified the spiritual problem within the life of the believer. But two, I love it when people respond to my sermon that way. Uh, <laughs> two, identify the answer to the problem in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is not surprised by this division because he tells us that it is a fruit of spiritual immaturity. Many Christians in Corinth had not been weaned from spiritual milk. They had not grown into maturity feeding on solid food. Now, this is not to say that Christianity is like Gnosticism, where you move on by degrees, receiving more truth as you go along, but that many, though saved, were still young in their faith. Even today in the church, there are many who have been Christians for years, even decades, who are still feeding on spiritual milk, not solid food. Their spiritual, spiritual nourishment, like those in Corinth, is spoon-fed to them by their preachers, which is why they are so ready to line up behind a particular preacher. He's their meal ticket. And the answer to those who are on spiritual milk is not, eat steak. If you try to give a baby solid food before they're ready, they may actually starve to death. They're not ready for it. But Paul sees the answer to this dilemma in Jesus himself. He first gives them the word of the law. You are of the flesh and behaving in a human way. And then answers the diagnosis with the gospel, Jesus Christ. His appeal is to the cornerstone himself, reminding the Corinthians and us that we are God's fellow workers. We are God's field. We are God's building. Our salvation is birthed out of a work of the Spirit. We are not divided, but we are one. 
Now, there are things worth dividing over. Gospel issues are worth taking to the battlefield for. However, what Paul is talking about are those divisions that are rooted in the flesh, not over matters of truth. These divisions are personal, not doctrinal. And we're no different than the Corinthians. And so, how do we handle our divisions within the life of the church? And by the life of the church, I mean the local congregation, even the Advent. We have over 3,600 members here at the Advent, uh, so you may be surprised that there are over 3,600 opinions on how things ought to be done. And so strife and division are, in fact, inevitable. Now, I could say a lot about how this magnifies itself in the life of any congregation, uh, but that could be a sermon series lasting months. But suffice it to say this morning, the one area in the life of the church where our divisions become most clear, and this is a good test within the life of a congregation, is around the Lord's table. Again, I'm not talking about the doctrinal divide between the Roman Catholic Church and Protestants, but how our unity or disunity is manifested as we gather around the Lord's table. Paul, later in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 10, would spend a great deal of time discussing the Lord's Supper. Well, for Christians, this gathering around the table is a sign of our unity in Jesus. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 spends more time talking about the unity of the church than he does about the elements of the bread and the wine. Yet that which was meant to put on display their oneness in Christ, the Lord's Supper had become a symbol of disunity in the Corinthian church. I've seen this in the life of a congregation. In my former congregation, there were about a dozen parishioners involved in a lawsuit. Uh, They were suing one another. And it became a tangible impediment to unity when the two lines coming down to the communion rail, you would see people switching sides. They'd be skipping to the next line. They were fine to go to the same rail, but they were not going to sit on the same side of the rail. They weren't going to kneel there. And so what was supposed to demonstrate unity became very clearly a visual reminder of the disunity in the church. But they didn't think twice about coming forward. And part of me thinks that that's true. They still ought to come forward. But I'm afraid that many in the church, including that group, had come to think of Holy Communion as an individual act, like the Corinthians of old. It is individual to be sure, you communing with God. But it's also a corporate act as we come to the Lord's table together and eat and drink together. And this has been lost on on us, especially as Anglicans. At one point in the life of the church, we had one loaf of bread that we partook of. We had one cup that we all drank from. But now we move through the line rather quickly, eating our wafer, sipping from the cup that is presented to us, returning to our pew, not communicating with anyone, being quiet, and moving on as if it's just you and the Lord. 
In fact, one of the things that Cranmer did at the Reformation is he took the table and he moved it into the middle of the church so that the body of Christ, the family of God, could gather around the table together. Uh, no longer are you at a rail where you don't have to really look at your neighbor. When you're sitting around a table, you have to see each other's faces. You have to look into each other's eyes. Because indeed, it's a meal. It's the Lord's Supper. Now again, Holy Communion is about communing with God as we eat and drink Remembering what Jesus has done for you and for me. But we do not eat and drink alone. Holy communion has become so individualized that I saw in a congregation a division that went so deep because certain parishioners were upset with one of the ministers on staff that they were not willing to receive communion at the hands of that minister. And yet they still came forward avoiding that individual. It's fine to have a difference of opinion. It's fine for you to say, I like the 9 o'clock, but not the 7.30. It's fine to say, I would rather the clergy wear more ornate vestments or no vestments at all. But the moment these opinions keep you from coming to the table together, we have reduced our worship together as the body of Christ to an individual pursuit, allowing the consumerist mentality of the world to infiltrate the church. If we believe the customer is always right, we've missed the plot. And so where does that leave us in the midst of our divisions? Jesus actually gives us a way forward in Matthew chapter 5 here in the Sermon on the Mount when he says to his listeners, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, what Jesus is talking about is presenting an offering at uh, the temple, not a communion table. Uh, but the principle still remains the same as we come forward to receive the body and blood of Christ. In the same way, as we come to the table together, we ought to reconcile with a brother, with a sister. Otherwise, our coming to the table together is covering up the truth that there's actually division amongst us. Uh, in the back of your uh, service leaflet, uh, there is the exhortation for Holy Communion from the 1662 Book of Common uh, Prayer. Uh, and this is what the minister would say when he would stand up before the congregation saying, my intention is to celebrate Holy Communion uh, on this day. And he would read this exhortation to the congregation, uh, which has largely been lost on us. But I want to look at that second paragraph uh, about uh, really the second sentence that begins with, and if ye. All right, let's put our Elizabethan ears on and listen to the words of Cranmer. And if ye shall perceive your offenses to be such as are not only against God, but also against your neighbors, then ye shall reconcile yourselves unto them, being ready to make restitution and satisfaction according to the uttermost of your powers for all injuries and wrongs done by you to any other, and being likewise ready to forgive others that have offended you as you would have forgiveness of your offenses at God's hand. 
For otherwise the receiving of the Holy Communion doth nothing else but increase your damnation. Now let's go to the table. <laughs> what is Cranmer saying here? Well, what Cranmer is saying is that when he's talking about damnation, what he's talking about is your alienation. Your alienation from your brother or your sister. The thing which is supposed to represent unity now demonstrates disunity. And so Jesus does give us this way forward in Matthew chapter 5 that Cranmer echoes. And you see that in verse 23 that Jesus is talking about us, you and me, being the offending party. Not confronting someone who has sinned against you. Now Jesus gets into that in Matthew chapter 18. And so if you want to know how to confront someone who has offended you, you can go look at that this afternoon. Uh, But what Jesus says here in chapter 5 is that you need to go and reconcile with the person you have offended. What does he mean by that? Well, what he's talking about is that the plank in your eye ought to offend you even more than the speck of your brother's or sister's eye. You should see your own sin as more grievous than the sins of your brother or sister. You should be quick to go and ask for their forgiveness. Now, this may sound somewhat formulaic, But if you want to reconcile with your brother or sister, there are two things to consider. One, that in Christ you are reconciled to God the Father. And two, in Christ you are reconciled to one another. If you've never been reconciled to God the Father by the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no hope of reconciling with your neighbor, much less believers in the Lord. And think about the strife in our own world today. With all the division uh, in our culture, much less the divisions that we have in our church, if we want to see real healing, we want to see real peace, we want to see real reconciliation, that first begins with us being reconciled to God through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ. So knowing the Lord Jesus, most especially remembering where you came from, remembering that clay that you've been plucked from, and that you've now been established upon the rock of Christ Jesus, remembering where you've been and where God has brought you now is of paramount importance. Think of the fact that once you were an enemy of God, but now you have been made his child by adoption through grace, by Jesus' shed blood. God didn't see you and me and think they would make a lovely friend. No. We stood in opposition to God. We were at odds with God. We didn't love God. But God poured his love out upon us. The righteous dying for the unrighteous that we might be made his sons and daughters. If the Lord Jesus has borne so faithfully with you and me, think of how he has to put up with us. Should we not bear with one another? A memory that I will never forget is visiting a small cemetery in Bowman, South Carolina. And there in this old churchyard is a tombstone from the 1800s with weeds about it. The edges crumbled and there's no name on it. There's no date of birth or death 
there's just the word unforgiven. And yet that's not our story in Jesus Christ, that we're reconciled to him. So being reconciled to God, but then being reconciled to one another. If you have an issue with someone, there is a propensity to talk about them, not to them. There is, this is a seed of dissension and is guaranteed to fracture the church. This is especially true in the South, where we'll judge others behind their back, but be as pleasant as can be to their faces. But according to Jesus in Matthew 5, this is an attempt at spiritual murder. We are trying to assassinate the object of our scorn to other people, that they might die a little bit in their eyes. Now, no one likes these conversations, but they are of eternal importance. And even your worst enemy here on earth, if they're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to see them in heaven. And they will be more dear and more near to you than your closest friend here on earth because of Jesus' love and reconciliation. Now, personally, I know that I have wronged many people in my life. And I need to not only repent of that, but also repent if I have made myself unapproachable to the person who wants to reconcile. If I have framed my life to make people feel that they cannot come to me for reconciliation, then I am in great error and need the Holy Spirit of God to change my heart. I need the Holy Spirit to open my eyes to the dissension and division that I have caused. But that's just it. In any relationship, if you see that the greatest problem to reconciliation and fruitfulness is your own sinful self, there's a real chance for that relationship. If both parties know that to be true about themselves, then the sky is the limit. Otherwise, a sense of righteous indignation prevails. And Paul's words to the church in Corinth in chapter 13, that love does not insist on its own way, that love keeps no record of wrongs, falls upon deaf ears because it's always somebody else's fault. I was convicted this week when someone sent me a verse that I'd never really caught before from 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Sinning against the Lord by ceasing to to pray for you. How many of us have ever find ourselves in that predicament? Lauren and I used to go on vacation with two other families, and things went really well until we started bringing our children along. I wish somebody had warned me about that. And uh, while we were there, we were the closest of friends, uh, but Lauren and I had a huge falling out with another couple. To be perfectly honest, I have no idea what the fight was about. Uh, but what I did know is that we wouldn't eat at the same table for any other meal during that vacation. 
And then when we went back to Beaufort, Beaufort being a small place, uh, it became very difficult. Uh, we avoided one another. Uh, if we were in church together, which we more often than not were, we were hoping that they would sit behind the pillar so we couldn't make eye contact. Uh, we avoided one another. Uh, and it was a great relief when we moved to Birmingham uh, that we thought we'll never have to see those people again. Those people. After a couple years here in Birmingham, that third family that was caught in the crossfire of this great division and dispute, that family lost a two-year-old son who died suddenly. And they asked me to come back and do the funeral. And so I went back and I did that funeral and crossed the street. As we laid that two-year-old's little body into the ground, Lauren and I saw that other family. And at the conclusion of the service, we both ran as fast as we could toward one another and showered each other with the words, I'm sorry. It took the death of a child in order to bring about that reconciliation. And that's really sad. But it took the death of God's only Son to affect our reconciliation, that we might be reconciled to one another. Death has a way of giving us perspective, doesn't it? To understand what's important, who's important, and to understand and appreciate this beautiful gift of reconciliation that God gives us in His Son, Jesus Christ. If you want peace in your heart this morning, the first step is to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. If you've not entered into a relationship with him, that's what's needed for reconciliation, to be reconciled to the Father by Jesus' shed blood upon the cross. And because of that reconciliation, you are now reconciled to one another, your family. And like any other family member, you don't get to pick who your siblings are. And so we pray that God would draw our hearts not only to himself, but that we might be given eyes to see his children, our brothers and sisters, as he sees them, and be reconciled to one another and come together as a family around the Lord's table. Amen.